1917, and the U.S. is entering World War I. American boys all over the country are being called up to serve. And every man registering for the selective service has to undergo a medical exam, where doctors check to see if they're physically fit enough to fight. But in the Midwest, there's a problem. A huge number of the men in the Midwest had these enormous lumps on their throats. You might have heard of them. They're called goiters. And the situation was so bad that the Midwest even got a new nickname. They called it the goiter belt. The story of what caused it and how scientists and doctors fixed it is one of the greatest stories in medicine, not just in the U.S., but across the entire world. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today, we are going to America's goiter belt to explore a public health crisis that plagued the Midwest and the simple solution that changed the world. In fact, you probably have the cure in your pantry right now. That story, after this. I grew up in the goiter belt. And (laughs) growing up, I had no idea I was living in the goiter belt. I don't think I would have taken that kindly to it, frankly. But at one time, the goiter belt covered Minnesota, Michigan, the whole Great Lakes region. And this was just an area where goiters were a common occurrence and stretched all the way from Appalachia out to the Pacific Northwest. A goiter is basically a growth on the neck. It's an enlargement of the thyroid gland. We will get to the causes of that later. And 100 years ago, goiters were just a part of life. In fact, they were kind of everywhere. I want to direct you to a Renaissance painting called Judith and Her Maidservant by Artemisia Gentileschi. It's two women, uh, Judith and her maidservant, just after they've beheaded the general Holofernes. Ignore the severed head on the ground and look at Judith's neck. It's got a huge lump in it. That is a goiter. 15th century or so Renaissance painters, that was a very normal sort of figure and depiction. This is Dr. Angela Lung. She is an endocrinologist at the University of California, Los Angeles. When they were um, painting portraits, um, it was not uncommon to find a subject who had a large bump in the neck, the squirter. And they were often seen in profile, right? Off to the left or the right, you can kind of see that imagery. That was just who their subjects were. And it's not just in Renaissance paintings. You can spot goiters on ceramic figurines in nativity scenes and in altar carvings. Basically, once you know where to look for them, you kind of start seeing goiters everywhere. Ancient societies had ideas about what could prevent goiters. Chinese medical texts from thousands of years ago recorded that people would see their goiters get smaller after eating seaweed or burnt sea sponge. Keep that in mind, seaweed especially. Because goiters were much more common in people who lived far away from the ocean, like in mountainous regions of Asia and Europe, for example, where a lot of those Renaissance paintings were made. Mountain shepherds in particular were often depicted with goiters because 
they often had them. But the cause of goiters remained largely unclear. Until the 1800s, when a French chemist working on gunpowder manufacturing, trying to extract salts from seaweed, accidentally discovered a new nutrient in the seaweed called iodine. A few years later, a Swiss physician found that goiters could be treated by giving patients a tincture of iodine in alcohol. And by the end of the 1800s, scientists had discovered that the thyroid gland found in your neck actually contains iodine. And when humans were iodine deficient, it could cause really big problems. The role of iodine is to make thyroid hormone, and then thyroid hormone influences brain development. So there was a lot of mental impairments, um, neurocognitive uh, deficits, stunted growth. And so it, it wasn't uncommon to, to see uh, you know, groups of those folks residing in very, very severely iodine-deficient regions of the world. If you live near the ocean, you can often get your iodine naturally through your diet, through eating seafood or seaweed. But in some areas of the world, people can't get much iodine from their diets, meaning that whole populations could be severely iodine deficient. And one of those areas was my backyard, the Midwestern U.S., the good old goiter belt, which brings us back to World War I. When doctors in the Midwest started doing medical exams for the selective service, they saw goiter after goiter after goiter. And many of these were large and toxic goiters, meaning that these men had symptoms of thyroid disorders that could impact their mental and physical functions. In northern Michigan, large and toxic goiters were the number one medical disorder causing disqualification from the military service. One physician pinpointed the number of men with goiters in Michigan's Upper Peninsula at around 30%. That is really high. And later studies found that the actual numbers were probably even higher. Twice as many women as men suffered from goiters. And children had it too. In some areas, around half of all of the children examined. This caught the attention of a pediatrician at the University of Michigan named David Murray Cowie. Cowie noticed all of these kids in his practice with goiters. And he said, hang on, this is a huge problem. It's causing developmental delays, stunted growth. Let's figure out how to fix this. In Ohio, one doctor had launched a campaign to fight goiters by administering iodine tinctures to school-aged girls. And it worked, but it was also cumbersome and expensive. Cowie thought there might be another way one that had been pioneered by doctors in Switzerland, an easier, cheaper way to get people their iodine by adding it to salt. Salt. How commonplace it seems. And yet, these tiny white grains represent a fundamental necessity of our existence. Salt is pretty pervasive across societies. Um, most people use salt in their regular cooking. Most people have a jar of salt um, for, gosh, years on end. So it doesn't really change with temperature, with humidity, can be transported quite easily, um, you know, across long distances. Um, so it becomes a pretty good vehicle for a micronutrient if it's deficient across large populations. Cowie brought his idea to the Michigan State Medical Society, 
and sold them on it. But the question was how to convince people to actually use this salt with this weird iodine stuff in it. At first, Cowie thought that the right way to go would be to lobby the state government for a law requiring all salt in Michigan to have iodine in it. But another member of the society changed his mind, arguing that Americans sometimes uh, bristle at mandatory public health interventions. Instead, they went a different route. They set out to convince consumers that they should want to choose iodized salt, that it was healthier, better, good for your kids' growth. They launched a public information campaign, setting up doctors to give lectures all over the state. And in 1924, the Michigan State Medical Society officially endorsed iodized salt, which manufacturers used as a stamp of approval on their products. So if you peek at advertisements for Morton Salt from the 1920s, you see a lot of copy like this. Iodized salt protects children from simple goiter with its loss of appetite, lack of vigor, and backwardsness at school. That seems good. I will buy that. After iodized salt first hit grocery shelves in 1924, it was a huge hit. Consumers bought it, and the health effects were tremendous. Just 10 years out, goiter in Detroit-area school children fell to less than 2%. Today, severe iodine deficiency has essentially disappeared from the United States. These days, Americans get iodine in a number of ways— it's in milk, it's in bread, but iodized salt still provides most of people's iodine. We thankfully don't see goiter much anymore, but there are probably regions of the world where differing levels of iodine deficiency still exist. It'd be fairly rare, though, to see very pronounced and severe iodine deficiency, like in the days of, of old. Around 71% of the world has iodine added to salt, but some 2 billion people are still iodine deficient. And that still has huge health implications. It still remains number one um, across the globe for preventable mental impairments. And that's a very large bucket of problems, neurobehavioral problems, IQ, you know, decrements, um, ADHD, you know, encompasses a bunch of different things. But as a group, it still remains by and far number one. Before I learned I was from the goiter belt, I hadn't given that much thought to iodine and salt. In fact, I, I usually reach for the kosher salt with its big satisfying chunks. You know, I'm a foodie as well, but I cook with iodized salt. That's what I use in our household um, just for prevention of, of a pretty easy problem to prevent. To everyone who's about to come at me because like there are advantages to using kosher salt or Malden salt, I get it. They're delicious. I use them all the time. But just one half to three quarters of a teaspoon of iodized table salt will get you all the iodine you need for the day. Now, when I pick up that tube of iodized salt, I see something a little more profound. Because a little sprinkle goes a long way. The Goiter Belt, a.k.a. the Upper Midwest, is a lovely place to visit. And I can say it is no longer plagued by goiters, although even if it were, it would still be lovely. It was lovely back then, it's lovely now. And thank you so much to Angela Lerng. She told us the story of the incredible health interventions of adding iodine to salt and to the helpful article, When It Rains, It Pours, from Public Health Now.
Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Amanda McGowan. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher.